Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 122nd show. Today's guest is Mark Minkus, uh, co-author of Unfair. Mark, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. So glad to have you here today. So let's start off with... um, your professional background. So tell us a little bit about your professional background. Yeah, so I started my professional background as a Navy officer. I was a civil engineer and a a diver. And um, I went to school for engineering as well. When I got out of the Navy after about seven years, I shifted gears completely and went into management consulting. So I worked at a big firm for um, eight years where I focused quite a bit on on, uh, big operational transformation efforts. So a lot of lean transformations in manufacturing and then financial services and government as well. And then I shifted gears a little over 12 years ago and I had a a failed tech startup. I tried my hand at at something completely different, learned that failure isn't such a bad thing, but also rediscovered my love for consulting. And I got back into consulting and I now uh, run this firm, Co-Creation Partners, which focuses on culture change as well as operational transformation in organizations. Thank you so much for your service to country. And you work for McKinsey, right? That was right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you've got good bragging rights. Your parents at least have bragging rights. The fact you work for McKinsey, that's a great firm. I taught at Wharton for 10 years. and A lot of my students work for McKinsey. And uh, then we take the best and brightest. So congratulations on working for them. And what a great experience for you. It was. Yeah. Great, great learning experience. And you know, learned a lot, you know, of you know, what works. I also learned some of what doesn't work as well. And I, you know, I've incorporated that into, you know, the work that I do today. Well, that's awesome. So why did you and your co-author write this book? So we wrote this book partly because we saw a real problem in the world that wasn't being adequately addressed. And we wanted to find a, a way to describe the work that we were doing with clients um, and just you know, systematize you know, our whole approach and just clarify for people. So that was a real main impetus. And if I reflect on my own life, you know, I'm more of a, a systems thinker. And so I, I've always been searching for you know, what's that key leverage point in the system to create real systemic, uh, large-scale, sustained change. And you know, fear was you know, one of those leverage points. And from my business partner, Gaurav, you know, his perspective, he comes at business, uh, eventually made his way to a, a, you know, a spiritual point of view. And, and he's trying to bring spirituality into business as a way to create real performance and human well-being. And so together, you know, these ideas um, form the basis for our book. Tell us a little bit about your partner. Yeah, so Gaurav uh, Bhatnagar, he's, uh, he co-founded or founded uh, Co-Creation Partners over 15 years ago. He's a former McKinsey guy as well. And, you know, the basic story of his life is he uh, grew up in India and moved out of India, was a really competitive guy, eventually made his way to McKinsey where he was doing uh, marketing work. 
But then McKinsey went through a downturn uh, when he had moved to South Africa. And instead of getting let off, he got moved into this uh, culture improvement effort in the South African office. And he went kicking and screaming into that, thinking it was complete, you know, bull, for lack of a, a better term. But he learned through that work uh, how transformative, uh, you know, it could be. And it actually transformed his life. He used to have this point of view that, you know, you could either be successful or you could be happy. And he was really successful. Uh, but he was completely stressed out and his health uh, was deteriorating and his marriage was on the rocks. And, you know, through this work, he realized that he could actually be successful and happy. And, you know, it's big insight, obviously, and quite quite a bit of depth to it. But then he decided he wanted to devote his whole life to, you know, bring some of these insights to organizations. Well, I think when you work for someone like McKinsey, they gobble up so much of your life that you've got to, just like people who are uh, work at Goldman Sachs, a lot of times, they don't last long, uh, not because they can't do the work, but because it, it the work-life balance uh, disappears and you're yeah, traveling absolutely. all the time. Yeah, and they attract people who are already uh, probably prone to being burnt out and stressed out. And I, I had that experience myself. I, you know, I was a very hyper-competitive person um, before I even went to McKinsey. And you know, I probably sought McKinsey out because... Of, of that reason. And then it just gets supercharged, you know, when you're in an environment like that. And there's good aspects to that, but there's also some dark sides to living life in that way. Yeah. And I'm sure you learned a lot that reflects in this book uh, about fear and, and managing and all the different management styles, because that's the beauty of working for somebody like McKinsey is you get to see so many different corporate cultures. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing, you know, both the McKinsey and my work now is you get to see so many different organizations and we work across industries. So we see, you know, the private sector and across industries and nonprofits and government. And we see, you know, both the similarities, but also some of the differences across those different environments. So um, how do you define fear in the corporate world? Yeah, I would define it just, you know, in the uh, just in the psychological sense as well, I, you know, I think fear is simply the perception that something is threatening or it's the emotion that is associated with the perception that something is threatening. And so, you know, for us as human beings, we experience that all over the place, you know, in our, our own lives, but also in our teams and our organizations. I mean, cause people, you know, have fear of failure. They have fear of like, I've jumped out of an airplane, really liked it. Most yeah. people aren't going to do that. So they wonder if the elevator goes to the top of my head. Um, but is, is the fear any different uh, in business for people or it's relatively the same fear as fear? I think fear is fear, you know, the experience of it. But there's a really important distinction to make between physical fear and emotional fear. So, physical, you know, fear is a very it's a it's an adaptive emotion. You know, if we didn't have fear we probably wouldn't have survived as a species. The challenges in our modern world and in our corporations, you know, what is threatening to us? It's not our physical body that's uh, being threatened. It's really our sense of self or our ego or, you know, the, the, our identity with certain beliefs that feel threatened in the, the work environment. And those become really interesting to, to think about because they're not, uh, you know, they're mediated through our interpretations and our perceptions and stories. And so there's more scope there to to change them. But they, they're just as real to our brains as threats to our physical body. 
You start in the beginning of the book talking about how technology has increased, not decreased fear and anxiety. Talk about, uh, talk about that and what are leaders doing about it? Um, because it's really in- impacting people psychologically and the burnout factor. Yeah. Well, in general, fear is very much linked to um, our perception of uncertainty or the potential for the loss of something. And we can get deeper into that. Uh, but technology just brings change and disruption. And so it creates uncertainty um, in the work world and in our lives. And so naturally, fear will be um, will come along with that that perception of uncertainty. Um, I don't know that leaders are really doing enough to address that as an issue. I think there's a lot of talk about well, how do you know change management and how do we create buy-in for you know people to adopt these technologies that we're bringing into the workplace. But I do think, and this is one reason why we wrote the book, is you know, this idea of fear is sort of underappreciated. It works beneath the surface. It's sort of, you know, people acknowledge that it's there, it's intuitive, but they don't really have really good strategies for how to surface it and deal with it. So I think it's it's underaddressed at this point. The other day in the Wall Street Journal, they talked about that uh, CEOs are going to change the way they operate from supposedly being soft. I don't know if you saw this. It was a front page story. Uh, to where um, they're going to be more demanding. And I've never seen a period where they weren't more demanding. Mm. Uh, and, and everybody, as soon as the market goes sideways, then people say, oh, we need to make these changes. Uh, but the fact is that you can only get so much out of people regardless. And I don't think ever people were ever coasting because the, especially in startups and early stage companies and public companies where the demand quarter to quarter is so great for uh, revenue. So what's your take on this that, you know, it sounds to me like there's going to be more fear that they're going to be using more stick than carrot going forward because of this current panic with the stock market going down. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful, I mean, I think there's there's a belief there, an assumption. We talk about this in the book. It's sort of a, a false dichotomy between either having to use fear to motivate people or saying, look, that's not a good thing. You know, we don't want to use fear to motivate people. Therefore, we need to be soft. Yeah. You know, we need to avoid fear and almost, you know, protect people and, and coddle them and, and almost treat them like children. And give everybody I think that's a completely trophy. False choice. What's that? Yeah, and everyone gets a trophy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this the false belief, either we need to be tough and hard edge and demand from people. And that's just the way it is. That's the way business has to be run. Or we say, well, that's not good. And now we need to be soft. But I think there really is a third way. And that's, you know, understanding uh, fear and how we relate to it in a different way is sort of the key to figure out that third way. You wrote that fear is not the problem. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so just building on that idea of that false dichotomy, um, we, you know, that dichotomy results because people see fear as either good or bad. If it's a good thing, you know, maybe we we say, look, it's it just is, and it's good because it motivates people, or it's bad because you know um, we don't want people to feel afraid, and it's not a positive emotion. Uh, but really, uh, the trick is to reframe fear and to see it as a cue for learning and growth. It's neither good or bad. It's just a signal that we have something to learn. When our physical body's not at risk, it's a cue that we have something to learn. You know, there's there's some situation that we can, you know, we can figure out how to show up in a different way and be more effective than we have in the past. Uh, in the book, you mentioned three key aspects of uh, key aspects of fear. 
Uh, what are they and why are they important? Yeah, so one is just where fear comes from. The, uh, the second is how we try to deal with it. And then the third is what the, the long-term impacts are. So we talked about this a little bit, you know, where fear comes from. It, it comes from this, um, this sense that we may lose something that's important to us or that something's threatening. So situations that are uncertain, um, you know, they'll just naturally generate fear. So how we try to deal with fear is um, it's kind of gets back to that false dichotomy. We either try to use fear to, to motivate or we just try to avoid fear. And so it just becomes this overly simplistic view of, of what it is. We either just ignore it, its impacts, or we uh, you know, try to suppress it. And in terms of long-term impacts, there's really an impact to, if you look at the, the research, both psychological and uh, just scientific research, there's an impact on performance, human performance, as well as well-being. So any sustained level of fear and stress can create almost like a low-grade form of PTSD, um, you know, that raises stress hormones uh, on a sustained uh, basis, can create metabolic uh, disease and, and all kinds of, of other, other issues. And it also shuts down our creative thinking and, and our ability to really perform at our best. So it's really not good. I've run 25 startups. I've never thought it was a good idea to have people under stressful situations. Like there are CEOs who feel like, oh, the more stress you put on them, uh, the more that they will perform at a higher level. I, I totally disagree with that concept. Yeah, I think that people perform their best when they're relaxed. And there are maybe people who are very good at performing like that. But I think that that's not uh, wise. Yeah, completely with you there, Mark. And one question we pose in some of our workshops, you know, we ask people, where do you have your most creative thoughts? And people are like, oh, in the shower, you know, when I'm walking in nature, or, you know, doing anything but, you know, sitting down at my desk doing work. And that's interesting, right? Yeah. We, we naturally sure. have our most creative thoughts when we're not under stress, we're not under the gun. And so how much are leaders really creating the conditions for people to think creatively and outside of the box and approach, uh, you know, challenging circumstances with new solutions? Or are we really just trying to demand stuff from people and you know, create that stress. Doesn't work that uh, way. How do leaders use fear to motivate without demotivating people? Yeah, what I would suggest there for leaders who think fear motivates um, is to consider what else motivates. So yes, fear is a motivator. The challenge is it creates all those, those consequences that we talked about. You know, it shuts down creative thinking. It creates long-term health impacts. It'll create attrition in, in your organization and cause your best people to leave. So the other way to go is to motivate through purpose and meaning. Um, and, you know, how do we create a story or, you know, a vision of the future that is really exciting versus trying to scare people into moving? That's really the essence of it. I think vision at the end of the day, right? Every successful company you've ever heard of, everybody said, oh my God, I brought bought into the vision of what yeah. they were doing. That motivated me. That made me work 10, 12 hours a day until yeah. they had to push me out. I mean, like, right? The best companies give unlimited vacation only because they have to push the people out the door. Uh, my sister was head of HR for a company where they had to take the laptops away from them to make sure they didn't do any work while they were on vacation. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is hard work doesn't exhaust us. 
Yeah. It's it's all the other stuff that we deal with at work, managing other people's egos and dealing with all these, you know, fear-based dynamics that actually exhaust us. And so that's a really important insight in the sense that, you know, people see a vision that's sufficiently exciting. They're going to work really hard for that. That's actually deeply satisfying for us as human beings. Uh, but we forget that sometimes as leaders. Well, I kind of wonder then, you read all the time uh, these studies that say only about 33% of the people are happy with what they do. But I'm guessing that 33% are the ones who are with companies that they buy into the vision and the other um, almost 75% are one, or more than, uh, I guess, uh, uh, 70% or ones that aren't excited about the vision and feel work is just work and just showing up. I'm sure that's a big part of it. Yeah. I'm sure that's, uh, that accounts for, for a lot of that, that low satisfaction score. Uh, yeah. Nothing to fear, but fear itself is what Franklin Roosevelt told the nation uh, during the depression. What can and do we learn from that phrase? Yeah, I think it's a it's a wise phrase. I mean, if you think of where that phrase came from, I guess you know, it came about during the depression when right. Roosevelt was trying to um, to rally the the country and and come up with creative ways of of addressing the situation and not just fall back and be despondent. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons for for business leaders today. You know, again, fear you know can motivate, but motivates in a very narrow sort of way. You know, I think it's easy to get people to do very simple tasks or very transactional tasks. Let's say go out and vote, you know, if you're in a really uh, fear-based sort of uh, state of mind, but it doesn't lead to creative thinking. So if you really want to think creatively and stretch and grow and, and do something you know, different than what's happening today, then it really requires um, to, our ability to transcend the fear that, that might be there. Um, you're... Uh, you say organizations don't transform, people do. What do you mean by that? Yeah, typical you know, point of view that a lot of leaders have is if you want to create change, will you act on the organization? Let's say we change the performance management system and the incentive structure and our processes and org structure and all that other stuff. But really, if you think of what is an organization at its core, it's the people. If you took the people away, there's really no organization. And so if you really want to create any true transformation in an organization, you have to change how a critical mass of people in the organization are thinking and how they're behaving. And so when you, you can get that critical mass of people to think and behave in a different way, then the, the whole organizational system transforms on its own. And if you think about it, you know, a lot of what we create in the outside world, whether it's strategies, the processes we put together, the org structures, they're really a manifestation of the beliefs that we have individually and collectively anyway. So if How you really the, want to change a system, you change at that level. How has the pandemic changed all of this, especially now that you're hearing people don't want to go back to the office? I mean, first it was a fear of you know getting sick, but then people will say, you know what, I really gotten used to working from home. I kind of like, and especially the under 35 uh, people who don't have children yet, or maybe they do have young children, but they prefer to work from it. Now I'm hearing CEOs saying, maybe <coughs> I need to demand they come back to the office because since our stock price is falling or revenue is not good, we need to get them in. But I wonder, how do you build a corporate culture if people aren't actually in the building? I mean, if we're all living in our houses, working from there. 
And for some industries, you know, consulting that could possibly work, but for most other businesses that can't work. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of facets here. I mean, I, I think in general, if I was to reflect on the, just the COVID pandemic, you know, it's created a lot of additional uncertainty in, in the world. And so that just naturally, I think, raises a level of fear um, that people are experiencing. But to get into, you know, corporations and how they're they're dealing with it, I think there's sort of the the symptoms and the causes. I think what is a symptom in my mind anyway, is people don't want to come back to work. But that was perhaps a symptom of, uh, of you know, a poor culture in the first place. A lot of people don't want to come back to work because it's it wasn't really satisfying to uh, you know be around their their coworkers and the the environment they were in just wasn't wasn't really supportive and, and generative. So you know if they can create some distance between that environment and uh, another one, they'll they'll do it. Um, so that's just one reflection. And I, I see some companies you know bring people back and they're excited about it. Others aren't. But I think that's an underlying symptom of a culture that wasn't very healthy in the the first place. But how do you deal with that um, is interesting because I, I think it's really hard to build a, a generative culture, a really positive culture, if you don't have people working at some level face to face together. I think that, you know, when you kind of boil people down to a little little screen on on Zoom or Teams and only have um, remote interactions, it's really difficult to build strong relationships it's really difficult to do any sort of sustained creative problem solving. So I think it's a real challenge for organizations, you know, and it's a bit of the chicken, the egg. It's hard to build a culture if you can't get people to together, but people don't want to get together in some cases because the culture wasn't that great in the first place and wasn't, wasn't seen as really malleable and, and nourishing. So, so that's something leaders need to navigate through. Um, it would have been an interesting thing for if the show, the office still existed, to have tackled oh, that issue, right? Yeah. 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 And well, it, it'd be, I think it would make for boring TV because it, I, unfortunately, I think all the remote work just really suppresses the drama, both good and bad in a work environment, it just sort of levels everything off and just makes it all kind of tamped down. And so if there was a lot of bad drama, that's probably a good thing. But if there was a lot of good positive drama, um, you know, you're missing out on that as well. You're right. If you're in a toxic environment, you're just glad to stay home. But if you really enjoy the people you're around and look forward to seeing them every day, yeah. then this was a really bad thing. And for some yeah. people, it was very lonely. Yeah. Why, why is you right? Do some leaders believe that you either have an exceptional organization at the expense of the employee well-being or an organization prioritizes the employee's well-being, yet you write you can have both? So talk about that. Yeah, so this gets back to that dichotomy. Either you know leaders believe you use fear to motivate, and they're they're right. You can mo get people to move uh, pretty fast on things through fear, um, and you can create some results in the short term. But there is that long term impact on human well being, and you'll probably see a lot of uh, attrition. Now, you know, conversely, if you say, "Hey, we're just going to focus on people's well being," you actually suppress the conditions that otherwise create performance you you suppress conflict and people don't talk about the things they need to, to talk about and so the idea is to say look fear is neither a good thing or a bad thing but what we want to do is create real constructive conflict in the organization that doesn't require fear but it will involve fear and so if we can see fear in a different way we can step into all of those difficult conversations and the hard work together 
with a different mindset and and move through it together without you know having all the negative effects of of fear to deal with who have you observed has done it well give us some examples of what you've seen yeah there's a number of organizations that that we work with i don't know if i can name all of them by by name necessarily just one or yeah. two and what you yeah. what you uh, observed yeah. So, you know, in the book, we, there's a, a really good case study on uh, BASF, but it's a, a yeah, my organization. Next question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. And that's worth, you know, calling out because that's, that's been a real sustained um, effort. Uh, started back in 2011, but, you know, BASF, it was their Wyandotte, uh, Michigan site. And, you know, the series of, of plants were underperforming significantly and they had a really poor culture. And, you know, there were some outside studies done on here, all the initiatives you need to do to save money and improve the, the site. But the site leadership decided to take another route and rather than just go straight into those initiatives to work on their culture. And so by working on their culture, while also working on those initiatives, they were able to generate, you know, 10 times more savings than anyone anticipated. And they brought all the, in just five years time, brought all these plants up to a really highly profitable level and they continue to work on this over time as well the the initial culture program that they started back in 2011 is still still going strong and they still do um, all kinds of work across the site and actually across uh, more of BASF so you know that's just one example of how if you lead with culture you can actually uh, multiply the impact of all the other things that you have going on but they let the people make a lot of this decision so at least that's what I read in there that it's yeah. not just dictated from the CEO's office or the C-suite uh, group in the leadership uh, of the company that the employees have a lot of input themselves on how that all should work. Yeah, it's both and. Everyone sort of has a role. It's not saying, hey, bottom up is the only good good way and top down is the only good way. Right. It's a, how do we you know, do top down and bottom up and together uh, you know, work, work through it? And an important part of engaging the employees is also... Uh, not just engaging formal leaders, but informal leaders and also the troublemakers. So oftentimes in organizational or, you know, or improvement efforts and, um, you know, leaders see troublemakers as, you know, bad and, and to be almost marginalized and removed from the organization. One thing we've discovered over time is that the troublemakers are the ones who actually care the most. They, they, they're troublemakers and they're, you know, <laughs> they're loud about it because they care. And so if you can get those troublemakers to tap into what they care about, but start to do it in a very different, more constructive way or more effective way, they can actually be uh, you know, the sparks for this broader chain reaction that you're trying to create in the organization. And that was a big part of what happened at BASF as well. Well, what happens often in companies is when you don't harness those troublemakers into something positive, they become your new competitor as they go and start their own thing. That and happens too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. the founder of Zoom actually wanted to replace his original creation at Cisco Systems. They didn't want it. So he said, do you mind if I leave and go do it myself? Have at it. And uh, he created a $40 billion valued company at the expense go. of Cisco's yeah. uh, own um I forget what their system is called. WebEx, yeah. Not, yeah, not WebEx. many people are using WebEx these days, yeah, for that Who reason. talks about WebEx, exactly. right? Yeah. yeah. And he said, hey, this system will be infinitely easier to use than WebEx, and they just weren't interested. 
Yeah. And what I suspect happens, because I, I see this happen in many organizations, is someone has an idea and they get shut down because it, it may be threatening to the people who are, are there. They, you know, Some leaders may think, well, that wasn't my idea or I've got a different idea. And so you know, these fear-based patterns sort of suppress ideas and limit constructive problem solving and cause really good people to, to leave and go elsewhere. So how do you stop that not invented here syndrome or that, you know, the head, and I've heard this from people, like the head of R&D, if he didn't uh, come up with the idea, then every, everybody else's idea was stupid. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so the process we sort of describe is an inside-out process. So first and foremost, you need to get individual leaders, both the formal leaders and informal leaders, to reflect for themselves, truly reflect on how they're contributing to the existing culture of the organization. It's very easy for people to fall back into the, this us versus them mentality. And so there's a process to get people to really step into their own power and say, look, rather than showing up as a victim, I'm going to show up in, in mastery. And I'm contributing to this problem. So how do I want to show up differently? So it starts with the individual. And then from there, you have to teach teams how to have more effective, difficult conversations and build trust in a way that they haven't really been able to do before to start to shift those dynamics. And when you have those two building blocks in place, then you can start to work on the organizational system and say, okay, great. When an idea comes up, you know, what are the routines or, or habits that we have in place as an organization to make sure that we talk about those ideas and, you know, bring them out into light and, and do something positive with them. And I think another uh, part, if you're really, really talking about, you know, creating the space for ideas in an organization is it also requires a lot of celebration, both of the, the effort and the attempt, even if it didn't work out. Um, so we're really celebrating and, and encouraging people to do the things that we, we really want them to do. Um, there's two questions from the audience. As yep. a remote uh, work become a lot more widespread, how do you foresee startups and large enterprises unfearing better in our increasingly remote environment? That's the first question. And then I'll give you the second question. Yeah, I love that question. We've worked with some startups who are you know, solely remote organizations, and it's it's actually... <laughs> quite difficult to form an organization and a culture and work through all the problems when everybody's remote. But, you know, the, the core of it is, it, you know, the senior leaders from the CEO on down have to make developing uh, a strong culture a priority and not just see, you know, solving problems on the product or the, you know, the technical specifications um, as the, the only priority. Those are obviously critical um, don't want to lose sight of those, but you have to make working on the culture a top priority, especially in a remote environment, because it's otherwise it's it's not going to happen in a really constructive way. The second so you really question have to put time, time and energy into like bringing people together and talking through all the issues that otherwise might stay hidden. Uh, second question is any pros of a remote environment in culture building? That's a good question. Pros of uh, culture building in a remote environment. Yeah. I mean, I think is there's there some, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the upside of a remote environment is it really does give individuals a lot more autonomy in terms of how they, they spend their time. Um, and for some people that's, that really is, is a plus, you know, my organization, for instance, we're a remote organization as well. We don't have any central office and people are, are scattered throughout. 
And that allows us to attract people. You know, not everybody has to live in the Washington, D.C. area where I am. Uh, we can bring in the best of people from Canada and, you know, Europe and other places to, to do this kind of work. So I think that's obviously the, the benefit. You have individual flexibility, also flexibility in terms of who can participate. It just it does require quite a bit of energy and effort to stay connected and to um, just, you know, feel like you're part of one team and, and coordinate. And have the discipline to do it. And, yeah, have the discipline. It takes real energy to, to make that happen. In 1996, I ran a, a multi, what they call them a multimedia company. And uh, some of the people wanted to work from home. And I said, I didn't care as long as they got the work done. And I was brought in to turn around this company. And the founder was like, are you out of your mind? How can you make sure that they do the work? I said, they get assigned, they do the work. And if they don't, they're gone. Yeah. Uh, you know, they have the choice of coming back and working in the office. But if they can't get it done, they're gone. Turns out we had over 25% increase in productivity wow. because those people were working all the time. Yeah, uh, I believe though, it actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and we started saying more people could work from home if they wanted to. So we just let it up to the people to make a decision whether they wanted to work from home. I myself have been working from home, even running organizations for 30 years. And I find that uh, I like the fact that you don't have all these meetings gobbling up your time uh, yeah. by doing this. I try to reduce the number of meetings because I find them very unproductive. Yeah, so you can exert a, a certain you know amount of control over your your day to day, which is yeah. positive. By the way, I actually think remote work is quite a good thing for individual productivity. the The place where it becomes harder to deal with issues is when there's some real conflict going on. When there's like a different point of view, we really need to sit down and we need to talk it out. Because even if you're on a video call, it's you're not reading as much of, of someone's body language. And what we do, just our, our brains are naturally wired to fill in the blanks that we're otherwise not, not getting. So if you're sitting in a meeting with someone, you're reading so much more body language than you are you know, seeing somebody on the screen. And we end up making many more assumptions about where people are coming from. And that causes conflict and other non-constructive things to perpetuate, you know, in a remote environment that might not otherwise in a warm face-to-face -face one. Here's another question. I was teaching side hustling in community housing this weekend. Low-income individuals don't have the financial freedom to make mistakes in life. How do you eliminate fear with low-wage workers? Yeah, because they're in a constant state of fear about how they're going to survive. Yeah, and I, the irony here is... Um, yeah, look, I, I think you know many people are in a very tenuous financial situation. I think that's that that, that will naturally create a lot of fear. Um, I also see whether it's fair, you know, appropriate or not, people who are probably in a really solid financial situation probably feeling or experiencing the same level of insecurity. And maybe it's around finances, it could be around status or whether or not they're going to get the same promotion. So I think fear is just part of the human condition. Um, but how to deal with that? I mean, I, I think with anybody, I think the question is what will allow you to be most effective in this given situation? You know, if being fearful or, or being stuck in fear is helping you, great. If it's not, what's another way you can be that will allow you to move through that situation even better? Much easier said than done, obviously, because, you know, there, there really is a, a lived experience that some people are having that, 
means things are very, very tenuous. Um, but I think that's the the thought process any of us need to think through is what what allows us to be effective in this situation. How has um, you write throughout the book about managing mental mindset, which athletes and entertainers talk about all the time? Um, what are the initial steps to managing one's fears? Yeah, sports is is a great reflection that we can translate to business, but sports. Um, players all the time, you know, talk about how they can, you know, visualize what's going on, you know, in the, the field of play, almost as if they're, you know, above the field of play while they're, they're playing. And they also visualize, you know, positive visualization about, you know, what, what it is they want to happen. So for us as human beings, we have this amazing power of, of language and imagination. And so the reflection for us is how do you, how do you apply that to create better outcomes in your life. It's, you know, part of it's mindfulness and realizing that we, you know, if we have a thought, if we have an emotion, it doesn't mean we're identified with that, that emotion. We can notice it. And if we can notice something going on for ourselves in the moment, then we have more choice over how we, how we handle that situation. We don't have to be quite as uh, reactive. And by having a broader, you know, viewpoint, we can imagine a future that's better than what we have today and, and work our way into it. So it's, how do you, use your mind to create more positive outcomes. It's, it's a habit. It's, it's a pattern. Some people call it mindfulness and there's all sorts of techniques we could talk about to create it, but essentially it's how do you become more attuned to what's going on in your mind, but not so over identified with it that you can't change it. There are um, in the workplace, a variety of fears people have. What are the top two or three that as a leader, you have to be concerned with in the dress? Hmm. I think fear is a very personal thing. Um, so it's kind of, in some ways it's a bit hard to boil it down to just one or two in the work world, because you talk to anybody in, in the world and they'll have a slightly different view on what their fears are. But I do think they boil down to a few fears of loss. You know, we fear a loss of security or safety. So the person who may be feeling really financially insecure, I mean, that's, you know, there's just the fear that I, I may not be safe or secure, particularly financially. There's a fear of losing status or respect. And then there's a, a core fear of, of losing uh, the acceptance of other people or, or having a fear of rejection. And so I, most fears are kind of permutations of, of those, those three uh, meta-fears. In their book, there's, uh, there are two ways a leader can take a company, which you outlined two cycles, the uh, vicious fear and the virtuous unfear. Uh, how does uh, how does consciously how do you consciously avoid one over the other? And does any leader think vicious fear is actually a good idea? No, I don't think anybody thinks vicious fear is a, a good idea. I think the challenge with you know any leadership decision making or any pattern that's happening in an organization is we tend to see the first order effects. You know, we tend to say, well, look, I need to motivate my people and we got to get the numbers done. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my job. And so I'm going to demand that people, you know, do this or that. And that leader in that case would be focused on the first order effect of do we meet the numbers? But they're not necessarily seeing the second or third order effects, which are, well, the next time around, people aren't going to be as forthcoming about the numbers, you know, if they're bad. And so problems get suppressed. And then trust starts to erode. And then the leader feels like they need to be even more aggressive the next time around to get, you know, what it is they, they need to get. 
And so those second and third order effects are what create that vicious fear cycle. So I wouldn't say anybody really wants that, but it's a natural outcome of not really understanding the, the longer term consequences of our, our actions. The virtuous unfear cycle is, is saying, look, let's see those second and third order effects. Let's you know, see that they're, they're there. And rather than having this either aggressive or passive way of dealing with things, I'm going to um, you know, have a, a, a wiser, more unfair way of, of handling these situations, even though that may be hard in the moment, because by doing it that way, I'll actually build trust, I'll build creativity into the organization. And next time around, this you know, cycle becomes easier and easier. You know, uh, you were talking about Netflix and they're um, going to have a significant cut of people and people are talking about is the model still working? And I'm thinking that model works great. I mean, who doesn't have Netflix? But now there just happens to be more choices than Netflix out there. And when Netflix constantly raising the price, which you keep wondering to yourself, how could they possibly be losing money uh, on anything considering how much... Uh, how much people are paying the number of people and they have what 200 million users maybe it's a bigger number than 200 million users paying about 14 dollars a month so you know how's that even possible but why are they in such a panic and people were saying oh my gosh the model's broken and so forth i don't get it yeah i'm not sure if i fully get that one either but um and yeah, how does I don't the know. ceo yeah. calm them down where the people and 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 the CEO doesn't go in the panic, you know this yeah. automatic because you see it every time. Every time there's some kind of adverse results, yeah. immediately let's just go start letting people go so we can make Wall Street look like we've responded yeah. to this. And hence, everybody is uh, at the edge of fear. I've done four turnarounds, and when I had to let people go, I let go everybody in one shot and did not do it over stages. Yeah. Um, because then everybody's looking for a job and nobody's actually working. Like your best right. people are thinking, yeah. geez, I got to get the hell out of here before the ax falls on me. And, and that's even worse for the business. Yeah. I see businesses go through that cycle quite a bit. I, I think part of that's just a, a function of short-termism. You know, if we're just trying to make the short-term numbers, you know, we tend to lose sight of that in the longer term, you know, business impact and, you know, the actions we take today may cause some of our best people to leave in a, a year's time. Well, now you're having to retrain those people. And, you know, that's sort of a, a pattern of decline that you probably see through a lot of lor- large organizations. And I think it does get back to, you know, there's some uncertain period of time. If we take a purely short-term view of this, um, sure, we may survive today, but then you create the conditions for a really poor performance longer term. What I, I would love to see leaders do is balance the two. You obviously need to save you know, uh, the day today, but uh, we also need to appreciate the the longer term effects and make sure that we don't overreact today, but really um, while we're handling the challenges of today, um, do it in an unfair way, not a fear-based way. So we really um, improve the culture as we go and as we work through these challenges. A question from the audience. As a white male, I have privileged status. Without being privileged, there are uh, systemic factors which can heighten fear. How do you address these in your book, if at all? So we allude to to that. I mean, we don't talk about it too much. Uh, again, I'm you know I'm a white male, and so um, there's some things I feel like I I really can yeah, talk, talk about it. directly, and, and some things that it's really it's not my my place to to say. You know, Gaurav is um, from India, 
I may have a, a different perspective. But I do think this idea of, you know, are we having conversations from a, a place of fear or are we having conversations from a place of true curiosity and empathy for another human being is, I mean, it's core to the unfair work. And I, I suspect it's, it's really core to any um, diversity, equity and inclusion um, issues as well. But, you know, these, these topics are really fraught with fear on all sides, right? People fear of not, you know, feel like they, they won't be heard or seen and their lived experience won't be appreciated. And other people fear that, you know, they may say the wrong thing. And so I think it's, you know, how do we come together and truly be curious and work together and, and start to see things in a different way because we're having a conversation. Uh, a concept I think is natural to startups, but one large companies are struggle with, which is having a dynamic environment. And D. Hawk, uh, former CEO of Visa, termed uh, chaotic. Did I pronounce that? Uh, chaotic. 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 Yeah. chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> can you yeah. explain that and what we can learn from that? Yeah, there's sort of, uh, you know, this is another dichotomy where, you know, you either see, you know, a situation as pure chaos or pure order. And, you know, order is good because we reduce uncertainty, but when we reduce uncertainty, we, we extinguish the, the chance for anything new to emerge. But if we go to the other extreme and just everything's chaotic, then it's hard to exert any sort of control. Everything's just sort of all over the place. And so the idea of chaotic is how do we create an organizational system that can navigate between those two where there's not too much order, but there's not too much chaos. And so we talk about you know, how to create stories and learning routines and, and other structures that generate that sort of um, you know, a little bit of chaos and uncertainty. So new things emerge, but not so much that it's all over the place. I mean, that's why the Fortune 500 changes so much is because without uh, that kind of entrepreneurial vibe and everything's yeah. the same, I mean, look at Kodak. I mean, Kodak had one of the best uh, names out there in terms of brand, and they had the digital technology because a lot of that digital technology is used now. Um, but yet um, the finance guys fought against, you know, abandoning film because they were making so much, but they had to make the leap. And if they didn't make the leap, well, they ended up uh, where the, the value of that brand is essentially zero, right? I mean, who cares about Kodak? Yeah, yeah. There's sort of this psychological bias against um, acts of commission versus omission. And I think sometimes organizations grow so big and people become fearful of, well, what if I make the wrong choice? Um, you know, that would look really bad. And so what they, you know, there's a default to, well, let's not make any choice at all. Let's just keep that status quo going. And really what they need to do is figure out how to make place more bets and, you know, live in that sort of zone of, you know, some uncertainty because that's where new things are going to emerge. That's where you're going to stay ahead of the curve and stay competitive in the market, but that's quite hard. Yeah. And that's how companies survive. Yep. You get uh, hired to reduce fear and anxiety. How do you get the client to realize it's a process without a guaranteed income outcome? Mm. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a part of the challenge with our, our business model is that there, there's almost always some leap of faith because um, at least when you work on culture, there's often not a, an immediate direct impact on the, the bottom line. Um, but how do we we do it? And we try to, as much as possible, tie whatever work we're doing to real business outcomes and real business challenges. So it doesn't feel like we're talking about, you know, 
all this abstract stuff that's really grounded in the strategy that we're trying to make happen or some operational improvement program or some specific you know process we're trying to improve. And so that's what the way we take uh, the culture stuff and ground it in real tangible business stuff. There are cancers in every troubled organization, large and small. What's the process for identifying and eliminating them? Now, we're not talking about the troublemaker who wants to make the company better, but there are people who are star salespeople who, or leaders of a division, and you read about this every day in the Wall Street Journal or other, Mac, other business publications, and people are like hesitant to get rid of them or even on sports teams because they're such great producers. What's your advice to companies about those kinds of people? Yeah, I mean, the, the quick advice is you want to optimize the whole system, not just uh, one person's contribution. And sometimes those superstars can be, you know, they seem great, but they actually can have a, a tremendously corrosive effect on the the overall team dynamics and therefore the, the team or the organization's output, right? And one way we help organizations see that is we talk about the fear archetypes, you know, these patterns of behavior that are really, really fear-based and what the consequences of those, those patterns are. And through that process, organizations start to see, wow, there really are some people on the team who may be showing up in a certain way. And they start to see and better understand how, how it can be corrosive. And so we just shine a spotlight on what those dynamics are. You know, otherwise they sort of stay hidden. I mean, it seems like common sense, but uh, obviously not. I mean, look at Kyrie Irving. He's a six-time yeah. all-star. And yet, guys who wanted to play with him after a couple seasons, they were like, either he's got to go or I got to go. Yeah. And everywhere he's been uh, after Cleveland, it's been bad for those teams. As much as he produces great numbers, it's all about him at the end of the day. And you yeah, see that and it's about... Patients. And it's about some of the decision makers, you know, the general managers and the coaches who are, you know, prioritizing certain outcomes over other outcomes. Clearly, clearly those people aren't prioritizing, you know, the team's win-loss record, uh, you know, they're prioritizing something else. And, or they're just making a fear-based decision to, you know, not address the elephant in the room, so to speak. Well, I, we had Ben Simmons here and we got rid of him. Uh, and he was a multi-time All-Star. And I actually was a huge Ben Simmons fan until what happened at the end. But I heard a guy from the Eagles, I was at a, a luncheon, and somebody, um, the moderator asked this guy from player personnel, the Eagles, and said, um, what do you think the Eagles should have done with Ben Simmons? He said, never have drafted him. And he said, what, what do you mean? He says, anybody ever seen the documentary on Ben Simmons? When he was at LSU, if you watch that documentary, you have to wonder what were the Sixers thinking because he's all about himself. That's what the guy was talking about. Nothing about the team. And he said, no matter how good somebody is, if they're not about the team at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how talented they are. Yeah, there almost needs to be a broader uh, definition of what it means to be good on the team. It's not just the, you know, your you know, individual you know, shooting percentage. It, it really needs to be, you know, how effective are, are you with other team members and how, what's your impact on other people? So um, how do you get employees and organizations to stretch beyond their comfort zone, which you write is important and if done with the right process to see bigger vision for future success. So how, what do you advise your clients on that? 
Yeah, this gets back to, you know, the idea of, um, you know, are you using fear as a motivator or are you trying to create a really compelling vision um, or purpose for the organization to get people to step out? So we all, you know, we all have our well-groomed patterns. We all have our comfort zone. And it takes a lot of courage and personal choice for us to step out of that comfort zone. And, uh, you know, fear is what keeps us in our comfort zone. And so you can push people out for a period of time, but eventually they kind of shut down or leave. And so how do you create, how do you make it exciting and inspiring to be out of the comfort zone rather than just, we need to push you out because we told you so. So that gets back to, you know, is there a compelling story that um, leaders are, are telling about the direction of the organization, you know, where we've come from and the values that we hold dear and where we need to go and why that's not all about what we're running away from, but what we're really running towards. And are they effectively engaging people and, and um, you know, coming to see that vision as linked to what's in it for them as individuals? You, uh, why is telling about the current reality in negative terms, which is used by many leaders, and we're seeing it now like every day, to motivate such as if we stand still, we'll get run over, or that the world is changing and we need to change with it? Why is that a bad idea? It's a bad idea because it's it gets back to uh, you know fear is a motivator and it becomes a default for a lot of leaders in times of stress. You know, shoot, there's something happened. We have to make these short-term numbers. You know, let's let's move. And you know, so leaders are creating all these these fear-based narratives all the time. You know, the burning platform is the the prototypical fear-based story, right? Platforms burning, we got to do something. Otherwise everything's going to be, be lost. And again, it, it motivates people in the short term, but eventually people become numb to those stories. So the next time you want to use a, a burning platform story, you have to ratchet up the fear and the, the drama even more. And eventually people just completely check out, leave the organization, or you just kind of enter this kind of low grade, low performance sort of zone. And so you, yeah, how do you talk about less about where we are, what's bad about today, and more about what's the exciting stuff that we want to move towards. That's the that's the idea. You write about the importance of treating employees like adults. And uh, what do you mean? And you use Toyota as the poster child for this. So what do they do right? And what can we learn from them? Yeah, the essence of Toyota, I mean, they're, you know, they're an organization that's held up as uh a guiding light for what it means to engage the organization in continuous improvement. So yeah, essentially what they do is they trust that people have amazing creative talents. And if we just create the conditions for them to <coughs> use those talents, they can solve all kinds of problems that help move the business forward. And senior leaders still have a role in setting the direction and making sure people are working on the right issues, but they really trust people in the organization without having to micromanage them to come up with all sorts of smaller solutions that help move the organization forward. Does that have to do with the Japanese culture? Is that typical in the Japanese culture? Do we see that typical in other uh, cultures or that's just Toyota? Yeah, so I'm not an expert on Japanese culture as a whole. My sense is they've actually bucked you know, the, the traditional Japanese culture uh, in many ways. Um, you know, my sense of the Japanese culture is it it tends to be uh, quite hierarchical and, you know, a challenging authority is is not necessarily seen as uh, something that's okay to do. But in Toyota, it's, it's a bit different. They've really been mindful at saying, look, we can't, 
create an organization and can't compete on a global scale unless we unleash the creative talents of our people. So how do we do that? We actually need to trust people and they need to challenge us and they need to tell us what's getting in the way of their work and how they can do it even better. And so I think it's it's a bit countercultural is, is my sense of it. I thought this was really interesting and I did not know this. I was surprised to read that 25% of P&G's products come from crowdsourcing, uh, crowdsourcing using a platform called Innocentive Network. What happened to only that we get it built here, it got sold here, and, and we don't use outside platforms? And yet they're doing it. And you know, usually people have this fear of that, hey, if, if, it's, if somebody could do it from the outside, how am I even going to keep my job? Um, which means I'm not doing my job if they have to go outside. So how do you make that work? I mean, clearly P&G is making it work, and I, I had no idea that they were yeah. using that. Yeah, so I, you know, Gorham could probably, he's, he came out of P&G um, years ago, so he could probably speak more to the, the particulars of, of that culture and what they, they do there. But, you know, my general sense of, of that is, yeah, you have to, you know, work through people's insecurity of, of outsourcing part of their job. You know, if you're purely to live in a fear-based sort of a protective um, way, it would be really hard to entrust other people or the crowd to give you ideas. So it really requires an unfair stance to say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to be open to the ideas that you can provide. And rather than having to be the expert myself, I can be the facilitator or the integrator of ideas. So reimagining your role and not being so identified with having to be the one with all the ideas is probably an important part of that process, I would imagine. How do you let people know that new ideas are welcome and accepted? Because when one of the organizations, well, at many of the organizations I ran, I used to make a list of all the new ideas and where they came from. And so when people join the organization, they saw the secretary came up with this, our head of marketing came up with this, somebody in the mailroom came up with this idea, and I listed all the ideas and the outcomes uh, for them. And so it encouraged people to do that. But you know, it was easy for me. I'm running a startup, yeah. and, and this is just how my head's wired. But how do organizations, especially bigger ones that are so bureaucratic, uh, do that? It's a version of that that tactic. I love that, by the way, because it really gets down to how do you celebrate the contributions of other people? And I, in most organizations I, I've stepped foot in, they put a lot of energy into uh, you know, signing consequences when things go bad, negative consequences, right. because they're, you know, it's a very protective sort of way of, of working and risk mitigation. Um, there's less energy put into just celebrating what you know what people do and the ideas that they come up with. So, I think the essence of it is how do you? There's all kinds of ways to celebrate, but when people come up with ideas, whether they're great ideas or not great ideas, how do you at least celebrate the creativity and the attempt and even the small little failures when learning still happens? That's that's really the essence of what you need to do. So, uh, here's a couple questions as we're closing out here. Uh, the first question from the audience is, what is the overlap between fear and ethical decision-making? Sanctions can be a tool to mitigate unethical behavior, but fear can also lead to unethical behavior if the organization focuses on meeting numbers, which we saw with Wells Fargo making up all those false accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I think fear of 
bad consequences can be a guide to good decision making, right? That's that that is certainly there. I think if we if you get stuck in a fear based way of uh, kind of moving through the world, though, it, there can be ethical implications um, for any of those. So in the book, we talk about these different fear archetypes, but basically leadership styles or patterns that show up if we're kind of in this fear based way. I think there's ethical downsides to any one of them. One, for instance, would be this avoidance pattern. So I, I fear conflict and therefore I have a generally avoidant pattern. You know, the way that could tip into unethical behavior is I see something that's bad or wrong. And my general pattern is I don't say anything because I don't want to, I don't want the conflict. And so that, that could be unethical. So any of these patterns, you know, taken to an extreme can, can tip into unethical behavior or, or at least create some additional risk there. Here's the last question. How can companies uh, help employees working remotely reduce their isolation and anxiety? Mm. Yeah, all kinds of tactics, I think. You know, one is every once in a while get together in person, impossible. I, I think it's just, it's it's great to, you know, the remote work ends up working better after people have gotten a chance to get together, have dinner together, just get to know each other, um, not just over a, a Zoom call. But I, I think one very simple tactic I'll, I'll give you here in this um, conversation is this um, practice called a check-in. But at the start of every meeting, it doesn't have to be every meeting, but but some meetings, literally going around the room and just checking in with people to say, how are you feeling today? Do you have any interferences that are preventing you from being fully present? And you know, maybe there's some other fun question you can add to that as well. But you know, truly with real curiosity, asking people, how are you doing today? And role modeling yourself as a leader you know, so if you're having a really bad day or your kid's sick and home and, you know, it's distracting you in the background, you know, just naming that and humanizing the experience of, of being in a remote environment would help quite a bit. And that that would naturally bring people together. Mark, Mark, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. The book was awesome. Uh, your answers were great. And I think um, you know people need to be thinking about that, especially right now, where people are feeling very uneasy, more so now than the pandemic, because the stock market's kind of upside down, and you're hearing all these companies now talk about laying off people, and when you start to hear, you know, Facebook and these guys are saying, "Hey, we're going to reduce the number of new hires and also get rid of people," now people have a real sense of uh, fear, and you hear the leadership of companies panicking, questioning their own business models that have been doing really well and, and making people feel anxious. So I hope people read the book, especially the leaders, read your book, and so that we can see better future outcomes. So thank you so much for taking the time. You bet. It's great to be here. Thank you. Have a great uh, day and a great weekend, everybody. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.